You are listening to a live audio recording from Women's Bible Fellowship at LEFC. Welcome to week three. Today's teaching is on Exodus 17, 1 through 18, 27. Thanks for joining us. Good morning, ladies. Uh, my name is Jenny Hoover, and I am the third member of the teaching trio this semester at WBF. Uh, we have been blessed the last two weeks to hear from Lindsay Smoker and Chris Cox. And I am so excited to be with you today. I do have to warn you uh, that I am a fast talker. I also need to warn you that I'm very excited this morning. I am so thankful that these are the two chapters that I get to spend some time with you in. Um, So if you connect those two, fast talking and excited, you can imagine what might be coming for you. So I'm going to need your help this morning. If I just get too crazy and I'm talking too fast, just throw your hands up in the air and wave them like you just don't care. I feel like if y'all are waving all crazy, it'll be a really clear sign to me to calm down and speak a little more slowly. So can you do that for me? I know some of you will. Yeah. Yeah. Lindsay, I'm looking at you. All right, so this morning, um, this text is so rich, and I have so enjoyed studying to be a part of this teaching team. Um, this, This book of Exodus is so rich. The whole book is rich, but again, I am just so thankful that I get to share with you today out of chapter 17 and 18. I have enjoyed digging deeper with a great team of ladies over the past several months as we have prepared for this study. I've read these passages of scripture so many times in my life, but I feel like I've had a renewed and new sense of aha moments as I have studied for this. And I've needed to remind myself that it's okay to sit in the unknown as Lindsay reminded us of in week one. My preparation for this time, though, has really just stirred in me a desire to know more of the Lord. And in his mercy, he is faithful to reveal himself to us as we pursue him through his word. Last week, Chris did a great job of testifying to God's abundant provision and grace as the Israelites traveled through the desert wilderness. He's going to continue to prove that faithfulness as we journey with the Israelites this week. Chris shared a map last week of the Israelites' journey from Egypt. And today, let's look at their journey from the wilderness of sin to Mount Sinai, represented by the green line. Remember that Mount Sinai is where God made himself known to Moses and promised that he would deliver his people from the hands of the Egyptians. Today, we're going to unpack the rich truths we can find in Exodus 17 and 18. While there are so many themes packed into these two chapters, like God's response to our quarreling and testing, his provision of protection and wisdom, his sovereignty over nature and people, his design for us to rest, we're going to focus primarily on just a few of those themes today. And I hope, though, as you have studied these chapters this week, that you were reminded of God's faithfulness, his mercy, his protection, his great care, and his provision. Ultimately, as we have seen in the Exodus story until now, and even in all of Scripture, God is faithful. 
as we open our Bibles to read this week's chapters, we notice right away that the people were quarreling. And quarreling is really just next level grumbling. Another way to think about this is that Israelites were being critical of God. It's pretty sobering if you think about it that way. It's easy to look at the Israelites and wonder how on earth they could doubt God so quickly after he had just rescued and redeemed them at the Red Sea. But already they had forgotten. In one of the commentaries I read while preparing for this, uh, the author explained grumbling as toxic. Quarreling and grumbling and complaining can spread to other people. When we complain, it can harden our own hearts towards God. We are acting as the judge and we are putting God on the stand, declaring that he has gotten it wrong. He hasn't given us the lives we deserve or think we deserve or the lives that we want. We grumble when we take our eyes off of Jesus and we lose perspective. We are in essence judging God. This is as much a danger for us today as it was for the Israelites. If we stop and think about what God has done for us, his faithfulness through the generations, we would never complain, criticize, or protest. But we too can very easily stumble into this. Am I right? Another thing to think about with the Israelites is that even though God was rescuing them from something worse, slavery, their circumstances were still very challenging. Sometimes living in the difficult is easier than living in the unknown. This would be a shock for any of us and would logically make us wonder, can we trust God and will what's ahead really be better? Another thing we might consider is what it might feel like when we've received a promise from the Lord and it takes a while to see that come to fruition. It's easy to question in those times if the Lord is really with us or not. There is no doubt the wilderness would be a challenging place to steadfastly trust God. I don't know about you, but I can get awfully whiny when I'm hot and when I'm thirsty. So I'm guessing I would last about two hours into this journey before I fell into the sin of grumbling. I don't even know if it would like register. Would that green line even appear if it were like tracking me? Okay, okay, let's be honest here, maybe two minutes. And really, that is probably generous. I've been thirsty before, and I've spent a lot of time in the desert having grown up out west, but I don't recall there ever being a time where I was worried that I would run out of water. Because you see, before you go on any adventure in the desert, you plan and you prepare and you take plenty of water. And not just enough water for that day's adventures, but you take enough in case you run out of gas or you're injured or you get lost. Any of those things can quickly lead to dehydration. And lack of water in the desert can lead to death. So I can imagine that not having water in the desert would lead to panic for the Israelites. Fear can cause us to do many things, and grumbling and complaining are certainly some of them. We lodge our accusations against God, testing him as we do so. Because we think he's somehow not really going to save us from our circumstances. But they had the promise from God. And they had proof of his previous faithfulness. 
One hand, one hand. She needs more volume. Sometimes our physical panic, fear of the unknown, or loss of perceived control can cause us to become defensive and self-protective instead of trusting. As my friend Brianna and I were nerding out at a restaurant one day over all of this, she referenced a song by Sarah Groves called Painting Pictures in Egypt. Here are just a couple of lines from that song that speak to what we're talking about. I was dying for some freedom, but now I hesitate to go. I am caught between the promise and the things I know. Perhaps we can identify with these feelings in our own lives. In your homework this week, we pondered the question the Israelites asked in verse 7. Is the Lord among us or not? There's a pervasive thought in Christian culture that when God is with us, things are easy. When things are hard then, it's easy to see how the Israelites could question whether he's with them or not. The Israelites had seen God's faithfulness and provision, the pillar and the cloud, the manna, the quail, the sweet water. But this was a new thirst. This was a long and difficult desert experience. God is faithful and abundant in his provision for us physically and spiritually. God was gracious to provide for the people in the midst of their quarreling. In verse 6, we see that Moses is at the rock at Horeb, or Mount Sinai, right back to the mountain where God originally spoke to him from the burning bush. So we can find Moses at the rock, and God says to him, I will stand before you there on the rock. We are to equate the rock with God here. When God instructs Moses to strike the rock, God is symbolically absorbing the judgment the Israelites deserve in their sin of grumbling. God bears that judgment and instead extends grace and provision to the people by giving them what they truly need, living water. This is yet another image or foreshadowing of Christ. He bore our judgment and delivered us from spiritual death. We also see a recurring theme with water here. The Israelites were delivered from the Egyptians through water, and then they were delivered from judgment and death by the provision of water from the rock. 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 4 says, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Paul refers to the Israelites' journey culminating at the rock at Horeb. Thousands of years before Christ arrives on the scene, the Israelites were saved through water. And in Christ, we remember that as we experience baptism. This picture of the Israelites crossing through the Red Sea is the same thing that baptism symbolizes. Deliverance and new life. They were delivered through a type of Christ in Moses receiving the same spiritual food and water as we do today. God offers them water here once again, and they are delivered. The Israelites have now been delivered from a physical danger of death from the Egyptians at the Red Sea. 
a spiritual danger of grumbling coupled with a physical danger of dying from dehydration at Horeb. And now they face a new physical danger in the form of an attack from the Amalekites. And remember that the Amalekites are the descendants of Esau who did not receive the promise of God as Jacob, his brother, did. This battle is another manifestation of the ancient battle between Esau and Jacob, between the people of God's covenant promise and those who did not receive the promise. Moses' staff is significant in this battle. As the staff is raised, Israel prevails. As it's lowered, the Amalekites prevail. Note, too, that it says the Amalekites lifted their hands up against the throne of God. They were not simply attacking the Israelites. They were attacking God. And because they did so, his judgment was leveraged. Ultimately, God used the staff to bring judgment on the Amalekites and provide victory and deliverance for his people. We see here another foreshadowing of Jesus who delivered his people with his arms outstretched on a hill. Sorry. We get more detail about this battle in Deuteronomy 25, 17 through 19. Remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you came out of Egypt, how he attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary and cut off your tail, those who were lagging behind you, and he did not fear God. Therefore, when the Lord your God has given you rest from all your enemies around you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance to possess, you shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. You shall not forget. Can you imagine how Moses and the Israelites may have been feeling in this moment? The Amalekites were attacking them at their weakest from behind. They had never experienced war before. I think we can all agree that this would be terrifying. And in that moment of gripping fear, God proves his faithfulness to the Israelites once again. In the workbook, we had you mark every mention of Moses' staff. This is not the first time God uses the staff to deliver his people. God uses the staff at the Red Sea to deliver his people from the Egyptians. He uses the staff at the rock to deliver his people from thirst and sin. And he uses a staff to deliver his people from Amalek in this battle. While being used for deliverance for Israel, the staff is simultaneously used to execute judgment. The Egyptians experience God's judgment at the Red Sea. God bears the judgment of Israel's sin at the rock at Horeb. And the Amalekites experience God's judgment in the battle. In verse 14, the Lord tells Moses to write this as a memorial in the book and recite it in the ears of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. This is the first mention in scripture of something being memorialized in writing. We will see it again next week in our study of the Ten Commandments. Joshua will need to remember what God has done in this battle. Why? So that he can be strong and courageous in the conquest of the promised land to come. He needs this truth that the Lord is his banner to be his battle cry. 
In this era, armies fought under a banner, which is a flag that identified who they were and with what authority they fought. Here, in the Israelites' first battle, they recognize that their only hope is to be identified with the one true God and to fight in his strength. God has won the battle and in doing so has provided salvation for his people. We've now reached a pivotal point in the story of the Exodus. It may not seem like it, but it is. If we look back at Exodus 9:16, God tells Pharaoh that he has raised him up, shown his, God's power, so that his, God's name, will be proclaimed in all the earth. Here in Exodus 18:1, when we are told Jethro has heard of what God has brought Israel out of, this is when we see the fruition of what God said to Pharaoh. Word of what God had done for Israel is now reaching into the nations. Israel will continue to memorialize and remember what God has saved them from up to this point. And they will need to remember as they face new trials. But from this point forward, we will begin to see God lead them into what they have been saved for, which is his glory. And we'll see this as we journey with Israel in the lessons to come, as God shows what it looks like to glorify him as he establishes his covenant and his law with them. And all of this is so that ultimately, through Israel, all nations in the world would come to him. In verse 1, Jethro returns to the scene, bringing Moses' wife and sons with him. We don't know exactly why Moses sent his family back to Midian. They had started the journey in Egypt, and then he sends them back at some point. Many commentators believe that he may have done so to protect them from the hardships to come in Egypt. In our homework, we also learn what Eleazar's name means, my God is helper, and testifies to how God came to Israel's aid by delivering Moses from the hand of Pharaoh. I want to take a few moments to highlight something for you here. There's a really cool pattern we see in Jethro and Moses that is similar to what we see in Genesis in the interaction between Melchizedek and Abraham. Melchizedek is a very mysterious biblical character. And in Genesis 14, Abraham has just won a battle. And he meets with a priest, Melchizedek, who is not of Israel, but still proclaims the name of Yahweh. Abraham bows down and kisses Melchizedek's feet. Melchizedek blesses Abraham and feasts with him. We see a similar pattern here in Exodus. Moses and the people have won a miraculous battle. He meets with Jethro, a priest of Midian, who is also a type of priestly king who is not part of Israel. He proclaims Yahweh as above all other gods, though. Moses greets him with bowing and kisses, and then Jethro feasts with Moses and the elders of Israel. It's a similar pattern that's just worth noting because Melchizedek offers a foreshadowing of the priestly king role that ultimately Christ will fulfill. In Hebrews, Christ is referred to as a priest in the order of Melchizedek. 
So seeing this Melchizedek pattern sort of repeated with Jethro isn't something to overlook. If you want to look into this further, the Bible Project has a short series of five-minute videos that you could start with. But I want to make it clear that while Melchizedek and Jethro are type of royal priests, they are not Israelites and therefore not part of the Levitical priesthood that God will establish among the Israelites. We will learn more about this in several weeks. Jethro also plays a significant role in helping Moses become a good leader. While Moses was in Midian, Jethro taught him to shepherd sheep. And now he is teaching him to shepherd people. Jethro highlights the importance of pluralistic leadership. Leadership includes teamwork and delegation to the right people. Jethro advises Moses to protect himself and the people by not wearing themselves out. Jethro brings wisdom from his role as a leader and shares it with Moses as a mentor. I can imagine that Moses felt so cared for in this moment. What a blessing to have someone wiser, a father figure, to speak into his life and circumstances. God established the Israelites as his chosen people through whom he would bless the whole world in Christ. It's important to remember, though, that God can use whomever he chooses to accomplish his purposes. This story of Jethro gives us a glimpse of how God was at work even among the Gentiles. Jethro sees what God has done and declares, I know that the Lord is greater than all God's. We see in these chapters glimmers of how God will turn Israel into a nation which other nations will come to him. Our reading this week ended with a great feast honoring the Lord, attended by both Jew and Gentile. As they feast, breaking bread and drinking wine, they are feasting in the presence of God. The things that mark differences, race, religion, prejudices, are overcome by the beauty of feasting in the presence of God. And someday, people from all nations will be brought together at the wedding feast of the Lamb. This is made possible by the blood of Christ and in the fulfillment of the great promise of God. Let's take a moment to memorialize what God has done for the Israelites so far. Do you remember their hunger? Remember their thirst? Remember their vulnerability in battle? Remember how he helped them develop a healthier leadership structure? Chris highlighted for us last week that the Israelites as a nation was still in its infancy. God is giving the Israelites a first-hand experience of his character as a father as they journey with him. He protects and he provides. He is patient. He is steadfast. And he is gentle in his training. The Israelites had to learn to rely on God, and so do we. It's a journey, one that will include desert experiences and also moments where God's glory is so evident that we cannot possibly deny it. The Israelites needed to learn to stop looking backward and begin looking forward. They needed to stop testing the Lord and begin trusting the Lord. God was faithful to provide when he tested them, and he was faithful when they tested him. 
He provides physical, relational, and spiritual deliverance for us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your written word that we can look back to and remember all you have done, all you have promised, and most importantly, who you are. I pray today as we leave this place, we would remember in the times of rejoicing and the times of struggle that you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. Thank you, Lord, for the saving work of Christ on the cross and your deliverance and redemption. We thank you that you are faithful and true. Help us to see you clearly and live for you. We long to honor and glorify you and make much of you. We love you, Lord, in Jesus' name and with the strength of your spirit. Amen.